Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right. Today, we're with Alan Smith. We're super excited to have you here, Alan. Alan is a serial entrepreneur. Um, he works in the real estate field. He works with Skyline Development, and he has a lot of things going on right now. So he's building a general contracting company. He has 35 rental units. He's got seven new builds in progress at the moment, one fix and flip in progress, and he's got two Airbnbs, among many other things. We are super, super excited to have you here today, and we'd love to just kick it off with a story, man. Obviously, you've been doing this for quite some time. Can you tell me the craziest real estate experience that you've had so far? Yeah, uh, excited to be here, too. Um... I would say probably the, the craziest story I could come up with is when I bought just this awful, awful house. I, so the the seller had deceased in it. It was my probate list. And his brother-in-law or some distant relative was, was selling this thing. And so I come to the house and he's putting on his mask before he's putting the keys in the lock to go inside. And Oh, man, that house smelled so bad. So I did end up buying it. And later my landscaper was like complaining to me how bad it smelled from the outside like he was annoyed that he was breathing it through the windows so you know there's like a hole in the roof and it's raining through this hole it's like three feet wide and it just rots all the way down through the bottom the there was so much filth in the house that like the hardwoods had started to cup you know from the moisture and then at one point in time the we talked to the utility company and they said that the dude that lived there we asked for like, you know, the utilities, uh, how much they spent in the past 12 months or whatever. And they said he hadn't had water on in 12 months, but probably more because they only track it back 12 months. So this guy didn't even have running water. And the, there's a bedroom up above the garage that had like doo-doo all over the place. And the thing is, it's like, did this guy not have running water or supposedly he had a dog, says the neighbors, but the dog had died two years prior. So it's like if it was dog stuff that had been sitting there for two years, dude, this thing was just a disaster. We filled up two dumpsters of junk. Um, I had an impromptu yard sale and I just posted an ad on, I think it's Craigslist or something. And I figured there'd be like three or four people there tops, but I show up five minutes early and people are already like lined up down the curb, waiting on the, leaning on their truck, waiting for me to get there. And people are coming in, making offers on all this junk, bowling balls everywhere for some reason. Um, but yeah, that, that house was just awful. Smelled terrible. It was the filthiest thing I've ever seen. And um, I think I ended up wholetailing that Forget one. I kind of like <laughs> put a roof on it, uh, replace some rotted frame. So, so for our listeners out there, usually newer investors, did you guys take care of that stuff personally? Did you hire a crew to get all that stuff out? How'd you do it? And like, have you had a project like that where you physically did the work of cleaning up? Well... I had a rental turnover, one of my first rentals at like 2016-ish, and I actually did physically paint that thing. And I, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, I like hired her to come help me. And I mean, it took me two weeks to paint that house while running the rest of my business. And so I learned to never again try to do the work because it's costing you too much money to be in there rolling out the walls because the, the money, the lost rent, I mean... A half a month of rent was like 500 bucks. Well, a painter would cost. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense to for me to sit there doing all that. So ever since that day, I've always hired subcontractors. On occasion, I've hired full-on GCs to run a project. And we might get into that more later. But 
um, I've, I've generally kind of been a project manager. So on that particular house that was filthy, I had a couple of roofers and I called them and said, you know, give me a price on this thing. Um, landscaper. Yeah. Subbed it out to the, all those guys and, you know, check on their work, give them the check, make sure they give me their W9. That kind Awesome, of man. Take us, take us from the start. Like what led you? I mean, obviously now you've, you're encompassed in so many facets of the real estate space, but what led you from where you were at to get into real estate? Yeah. So it kind of all started. I got a full-time job. I was in the music industry at the time. I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. And my mentor said, you know, you got a job, you should buy a house. And I remember thinking that is so crazy. I'm just, you know, trying to hang out with friends on the weekends. Like I'm not, that's, that's aggressive. And I thought about it for a while and I ended up starting to make offers on houses. So my first purchase was a house hack, which I highly recommend. I rented out two of the bedrooms and then I thought, let's try uh, Airbnb and kind of see where that goes. And this was in the early days of Airbnb, like 2015. So I rented out the room on Airbnb. That went well. So I actually, I was cash flow positive on a single family house and renting out to buddies and stuff. And um, that kind of got me going on the real estate train. So I started listening to, you know, those podcasts out there and forums. And um, I started doing, um, trying to remember the exact timeline there, but uh, I think around that time I started sending yellow letters out and just kind of doing a little bit of advertisement with direct mail. And I remember at the time I was, you know, thought, Hey, if I can get 10 rental properties and just be a full-time landlord, this would be awesome. I'll just go out and change the water heater, you know, living free. This will be great. And as I kind of got into it, I just, you could just see all the potential. And I kind of got hooked on entrepreneurship, honestly, up until this point, I've been terrible at a bunch of different jobs. I mean, I've been fired a couple times, not a ton, but most of the time I just left jobs because I was just so bored. And so once I got into entrepreneurship, I really, it, it kind of hit, you know, and it was, it was fun. You know, the more work you put into it, the more you get out of it. And, and I, it was off to the races. So I had a little, uh, I ended up quitting my day job and going out on my own for a while. I mean, never looked back. I, so that was like 2016. And I remember I was, uh, once I went out on my own officially with no other work, I was sending out, uh, direct mail. I think that was my only way I was marketing. A little bit of door knocking. Did a, did a little bit of door knocking in the early days, sweating it out, man. Um, but it took six months to get my first deal. And then I got two. I hit two right back to back. But I was starting to think like, should I do this? Like, How, how long are we going to do this thing before I get some kind of revenue? So I got the revenue and, and kind of was like, okay, we have a completed loop here. There's some potential. Um, let's, let's keep this thing going. And those were a couple wholesales. So I would, I want to say around that time I started, I, I think I mentioned that I'm getting into real estate with at like some random party back home. And, uh, it was a buddy from high school who was like, well, I have some cash. So that kind of started the whole, one of the core, core requirements of success of my business has been partners. So in the early days, I, I pretty much couldn't do anything except for partner with people and I would pick up rentals. So I was all about rentals and still am to this day, but I was picking up rentals and bringing in partners. So this was like, um, you know, 2016, 2017, sending out letters. I would try to find a good deal. I would put it under contract and I'd go, okay, I got to figure out where this money's going to come from um, and built up the rental portfolio that way. Um, so partners were really important. And then... Also just kind of another, there's like those, those pivot points, you know, and you're, you're, I guess they call them pivots, but it's like those key parts that you look back on. You're like, Oh, that was, that was important. So I think it's important to always be networking. You know, you don't need to be a serial networker maybe, but like offer and help 
everybody that you meet and there's usually something that comes back to you as you go. So I remember going to this meetup here in town and I met a realtor and I was like, oh, whatever. Hey, hi, and exchange info. And then a couple, I want to say a couple months later, maybe he sent me an email. So I ended up buying from his friend four rental properties and a vacant lot. And the vacant lot was important because I thought, let's try out this build to rent thing a while after. We can talk about that more later. Um, so I bought four rentals from him and then his father-in-law sold me three triplexes. Then the father-in-law's son-in-law, I guess on the other side of the family, he sold me a duplex. So it's all from one relationship, just kind of exploded my rental portfolio. And that was in kind of around that 2018 range. Um, and I don't know how much detail to go into here, but I guess we can. Oh, it's cool. Um, that We could leave it there. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love that. Um, let's dial it back a little bit because you said something really important. Um, you left your job. You're going after this for six months. Mm -hmm. What were the feelings and emotions like going out for six months, striking out every day, and you managed to continue and just plow through it? Like, how were you able to do that? Was that just because of sheer determination? Or let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, I, I definitely remember uh, a roller coaster of mental battles over the past five years. So the mental battle in those days was, yeah, just sheer determination. Um, I didn't really tend to think a lot about like, oh, I haven't, I haven't like made money yet. It wasn't really about that. It was like, I was excited that I was doing activities that would convert to revenue if I continued to do them. And so it was a little bit draining, but I was also working a lot of hours. I mean, six months was like a year's worth of hours, you know, it, just like constantly working, just obsessed. And I think, I don't know if it's the youth that was just kicking in me or what, but I was like, we're going to do this thing because and I think a lot of it was I really, I believed in my capacity to do more. So every job I'd had, it just felt like I was kind of wasting away in a chair. And it's like, can I do, like, can you guys get me doing something more important than this? And so when I got to quit, it felt like I was finally utilizing my full potential. And even though it wasn't converting to revenue for a while, I was really believing that it was going to. And I think at the time I, I figured like a year cap, a year tops before we just pulled the plug on this thing and it didn't work. Um, but it was just kind of like, I just remember laser focus. Like it was all I needed to do was find a deal, market, find, go talk to sellers, find a deal, find a deal, find a deal. And I was just drilling that. I mean, I socialized at the time, but I was still a little disconnected. I was, I was very much on that, like, we're going to get that. We're going to make this happen. Okay, cool. So I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned your, your previous work a couple times, right? So you had a few jobs. Do you have, was there like a typical timeline at your jobs? Cause I can tell you, I relate strongly with what you said. Most jobs I last about 18 months and I'm like a rock star for 12 months. Then I get bored as hell. And then I become <laughs> a cancer. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm just curious, like, um, what your journey looked like in that regard. Well, most of the job turnover was before, was through the end of college, if that makes sense. So it was like summer job, bored. Job through the school year, bored. Different, just summer job, bored. And it was just that repeating that. So I probably averaged one job every nine months or so. I started working at Hardee's when I was like 16 or 17 and just kept working from that point forward, always part-time. Um, and then I graduated college, worked a job for three years before transit transitioned into real estate. But that job um, was about six months in. I was like, okay, I think I'm, I think we're good here. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the next two and a half years was just a slow, gradual decline. And, and there I was not a great employee. It was, I just remember them coming in and like 
smacking me on the wrist about all these little things, which I understand some, I should have been able to do those things, but looking back, it's just like, oh, this is so demoralizing. I had some of those college jobs too. So I'm, I'm curious to know more about you, the person. So for example, you're a music guy and you go into construction. So I'm curious if that you had to learn those skills on the fly, or if you grew up around a handyman that taught you a lot of things. Like, it's just mm. so crazy to think like you're musical, you're a contractor, you're intelligent, you're good looking. It's like, it seems like from the outside looking in, you've got the whole package, right? So it's like kind of define who is Alan. And you also have like this crazy confidence in yourself. Like give the listener a better sense of like, you know, who, who are you as a person and what, what led you to be successful? Yeah. I just, I guess a lot of stuff was self self-taught and um, you, you definitely stretch out the learning curve if you teach yourself. And I was always way too frugal to pay for like anything. So I never, I never paid for training, but I would, I mean, that first flip, I just started asking people, do you know a painter? Do you know a painter? Do you know a painter? And looking on <laughs> Craigslist and, you know, and then going and look at the job and like, I mean, you can't really be a moron, like don't pay the guy before he gets some work done, but which I've done that too. But, uh, it was just everything on learning on the fly. I think one, one significant weakness I've had that I had to kind of buff out in order to be effective was I'll say like the sales aspect of life, like people skills, networking, you know, uh, wants to be everybody's friend kind of guy. Those guys usually do really well in entrepreneurship because they're always effectively convincing people that their product and service is good. I'm more of this introvert analytical mind. So I loved looking at spreadsheets. There'd be days, this was like my crux back then. There'd be days where I'd look at a spreadsheet for like two hours and just tweak those formulas until they're like just right. And I, I got no work done. I got no generated zero revenue, but that was kind of like what I was good at and what I liked. So I had to round that out with being able to um, work with contractors and partners and, and kind of all that stuff and prevent or not prevent, present information to people in a, in a useful way. So when I'm talking to partners, figuring out how to say like, this is good for your wealth, not good for me, you know, things like that. Um, I, I, I want to dive into really this. Yeah, no, this is question, awesome. But it, yeah, no, this it. is perfect. It's exactly what I'm looking for. So essentially, like, you are not the normal entrepreneur, as you're as you're stating, right? The normal entrepreneur you feel like has tons of passion, expression, drive, inspiration. They can get people rallied. You're an introvert, like. So let's yeah. dive into that a little bit. So mm -hmm. essentially, can you detail some of the challenges that you had as an introvert, but also like go into the strengths, like what things because you're building something amazing hmm. from what we can tell, like what you own, et cetera. Can you kind of walk people through the personality struggles, hmm. the benefits and who someone maybe highlight for somebody who's introverted? Like, why is it great to be introverted and still be an entrepreneur and build something amazing? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think introverts can be really powerful as entrepreneurs because there's usually these sneaky hardcore skills they have. Like a lot of introverts I know are, really good at analytics and operations. So uh, talking about myself, um, operations and process and streamlining things, that is what I would say is one of my core skills. So while I can't necessarily um, go meet a, a middle-aged homeowner and convince them that I'm the guy to sell his house to, I've been able to do that a few times, but I, that's not my score, my core skill set. So I, I'm kind of like the operations guy, you would say. And, um, you know, I've got 
dozens and dozens of pages. I think my like SOPs are like a 60 or 70 page Google doc. And so I just document everything. I, I kind of keep streamlining the process. So um, usually introverts, you know, they're, I, I would say the, the typical entrepreneurship um, kind of profile is somebody who's a little bit kind of squirrely, always wanting to do different things and doesn't want to sit down and get the work done kind of thing. A lot of introverts are perfectly comfortable and don't mind not seeing people for days or whatever to sit down and just hammer out some process. But I will say, whatever you are, it find your, and this is probably obvious, but find your your core skill sets, your what you're good at and focus in on that and leverage that. So I've gone through uh, years of trying to kind of find my sweet spot, I would say. And there's been many, many times where I just sat down, got my laptop out and thought, okay, where are we at? What's working? What's not working? You know, this is, we're struggling here. We're not struggling here. How do we optimize? And what I've found is um, operations for me is where I need to kind of find myself. So you'll never see Alan Smith wholesaling at scale because I'm just not going to be, it's not going to be effective, but construction fits me pretty well. And it also pays pretty well because people don't want to deal with pipes busting and all that stuff. Definitely. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned that you had some strategic partnerships earlier, right? So, I mean, I'm guessing that's an important part of your business mm-hmm. model. If, um, you know, you mentioned you don't want to be the wholesaler guy. Do you have somebody that you could plug in there for you? So you just give them a call and be like, hey, I got a lead or, or how does that work? I've, I've touched on that a few times. I, I would have some leads that weren't that useful. Um, there's a guy here in town that was wholesaling and he was like just super engaging. I'm like, you know, I've got this lead. I don't really have time to shake him down. And sure enough, he calls me like, a few weeks later and he's like, all right, they'll take 8,000 for the vacant lot or whatever. And I mean, dude called the seller. He said like dozens of times. I mean, he was good at that. Um, but uh, as far as like partners and who's been key, it's, it's mostly been different ways of structuring um, money partners in, in the picture, I would say. There's been a few times where I kind of like teamed up with somebody on a give and a take, but most of the time it's um, they bring the cash and I kind of put the rest of it together and I just structure the deal in a way that matches their goals. So um, the first partners I, or the second set of partners that I ever had is a, actually a brother and a sister, but most of that's like my, my biggest partnership where we've generated the most activity and bought the most properties. And they, uh, they just wanted long-term wealth. So I said, well, that's what I want. So let's just buy rentals and hold them for 30 years or whatever. And they said, okay, sounds good. So I went out and found deals. And so that that's what worked for them. I've had other partners, you know, one, I'm starting a, a, a single family build right now. It's going to be a pretty expensive house, probably sell it for like 1.3, 1.4 million next year. So I got a partner in on that and she just wants to get a good pot on, return on her money and get, get her money back, you know, a year, 18 months. So I, I guess like, that's just been a big part of, um, I mean, I guess any success you could say I've had has really been because of other people that entered the picture at different times and who, you know, I was able to bring value to some kind, I guess you could say. So awesome. Some things that I'm hearing, and I'd love to get your take on it, is first of all, from early phase on, you knew that you could figure out how to value your time. And so it seems like you're not afraid of partnerships. You're not afraid to hire most entrepreneurs feel this burden to do everything all the time. And a lot of times it derails their future success. Can you talk to like how much you did partner, how much you outsourced in the beginning and maybe your views on that? Well, anybody you see who scales and grows really fast, there's a lot of other people behind them working. So you, you have to figure out how you want to do that. Do you want to bring it in house? 
you want to outsource it to a virtual assistant? Do you want to just outsource it to an agency? Um, my particular kind of journey through that has been one of the one of the things that kept me kind of moving along and not hitting any snags for a while was hiring contractors, GCs, we'll, we'll call them. Like they run the whole project. Um, and I would, because I was doing a lot of marketing and I'd get a deal, get a deal, get a deal. And really it was just, do I have the means to get the, the cash to buy this thing? And then I'd just dish it off to somebody once I got overwhelmed as far as the project management goes. Um, that strategy stopped working after a while because I couldn't hardly find any deals that where the numbers made sense that I was comfortable with. And, uh, and I would, and then I started taking on more of this stuff in house. And then I needed to, to figure out that whole owning a business, running a business. And that's kind of where I'm at now is struggling through learning leadership and business ownership. Cause you got to have, you got to build a team. You got to be somewhat decent at building a team. And that's been a real struggle for me is finding good help. Um, but I, let's see, does that answer your question? I think I went off the way. Oh yeah, I think it does. So like, let's talk about this struggle a little bit. So like, how has that gone? How have you progressed? And like, how have you changed as, as you've been learning from your journey? Mm-hmm. And how have you improved your, your skill set in hiring and things of that nature? I remember kind of that first hurdle to get over is just hiring anybody. And I'm talking about in-house, helping with kind of your operations, your admin, your whatever that like pile of work that you got to get done this week, having somebody help with that. Um, that... That's been, that first hire is a scary one. So I I finally just kind of got a part-time somebody to help. And she was, she was decent. She didn't have a lot of initiative, but um, that was what I would consider a neutral hire. And from that point forward, I've kind of hired people on and off. Whenever I've tried to hire help in the construction management, and that's been especially in the past, uh, like six, nine months-ish, that has been a very difficult role to fill. And I think a lot of it has to do with the sheer shortage of construction labor out there. So there, you know, you got your plumbers and, and electricians and all those guys. We're short on those guys too, but then there's a whole nother world of people who know how to run a project. And those guys are uh, really hard to find. I mean, I would put up an ad on Indeed um, for uh, executive assistant and get 300 applications. I'm pulling up for project manager and I'd get 12. So it's just, way harder to find these guys but um that that really is that really is a thing and the journey for me has been trying to just get incrementally better each time i hire and just do one thing a little bit better and a little bit better i've met people and you guys probably know guys like this but they can just seem to hire so right naturally <laughs> they meet somebody they they throw them on the bus and, and we're rolling and it just goes really well i think for me that um it kind of goes back to that thing where I'm sort of introverted. I don't read people really well, I guess. I don't know. And I'll hire people who are just, uh, man. <laughs> I bad. hear you, bro. I mean. I so uh, hear you. In it- so I'm trying to hammer that out. I'm reading a good book right now called Who. I think uh, it's by Jeff Smart or some somebody like that. But he's got this kind of structure of like four phases that you take a hire through. And I feel that it's very straightforward, very useful. And I'm probably going to plug that in on the next one. And you can, I can already tell that they're doing things a lot different than me. So it yeah. has to work way better. Than well, and, and the thing I love about business is, is the journey, right? So like you've identified a, an issue and then now you're taking, you're going to read books and study. And it's like, no matter where you start, you're an introvert, I'm an extrovert, right? So in my business, I've experienced a lot of challenges that probably are a little bit different than the ones that you faced. I mean, we do share a hiring thing. 
Like, it's like, how do you, how do you get like great talent? How do you get the right personality fits? Mm. I've even recognized, like, I like to build businesses that are like, not just good businesses, but they're good. Like they, they function around me in a sense, like, like I'm an extrovert. So I want people that want to be around an extrovert. You're going to probably want to build your businesses a little bit different than I would build mine. And so like, I'm kind of curious to dive in. I love personality studies. So as an introvert, like, tell me what's scary about the hire. Is it the spending of the money? Is it the fact that you're inviting somebody in your space? Like I know introverts typically aren't people that love to share numbers. They usually keep things closer to the vest. Um, cause that feels more comfortable. Can you maybe describe the feelings as an introvert of what it's like to have to be around people and to grow a business? I guess it's, it's a, a lot the fear of failure for, for me, the hangup is usually, I don't want to shell out that much. Like a project manager in this town, I'm probably going to need to spend six figures on an annual salary. Well, that's a big chunk of what I make. Right? So if we don't grow the business, then we're, we're in a bad place. So it's that leap of faith. Like, okay, I, if I hire this guy, will we do a lot more business? Can we, can we build 12 houses a year instead of three or whatever? Um, that that's a big thing. So I guess, I don't know if it's necessarily an introverted issue for me, but, um, just that fear of what if this doesn't work out and I waste a bunch of money and a bunch of time and, uh, yeah, just what if what if I hire terribly? Really, just that fear of of that, and I kind of talk myself into it one way or another. But at the end of the day, if if my hiring skills are not up to par, then it's it's going to be a struggle either way. So that's kind of my next kind of hump to get over in the next twelve months, maybe or even twenty four months. Become good at hiring. Let that turn that into a not a weakness, but just something that I'm okay enough at. You know? Yeah. Everyone who listens to our show knows Matt and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times you have watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. And the results prove this. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secret that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is why we have opened up a few one-on-one -on -one coaching slots with Freedom Chasers Coaching, where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are and where you want to go and most importantly, how you want to get there, where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are, where you want to go, and how you want to get there. The benefit of working with Matt and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 successful people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten the inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We are able to work with you to pick the strategy that will fit the best and then help you create the custom plan and steps to take you quickly into financial freedom. The fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight-line path to freedom. You'll get there with enough time. Trial and error, right? Yeah. So I mean, I'm curious. You mentioned fear a couple times. So like, how do you approach fear? Um, do you look like some people think, like, if I fear something, I should be doing it. 
right? Is that something that you agree with or, <laughs> or how do you approach fear? How do you overcome fear? Not necessarily. I don't necessarily think fear means go that direction. Sometimes resistance can be a sign that there's an easier way to go. But, um, I think it's maybe, maybe a good way to approach it is just look at your goal. So where, where do you want to go? Where are you headed? And if something is inhibiting that, then how, then you need to push through that. You need to kind of evaluate. So what I would do is look at that situation and figure out what, what are, what is this fear doing to me? What is it, is it really inhibiting my process? And, and if you kind of just call it out, it has a way of getting weaker, I guess, you know, if I'm like, even as I'm talking to you guys right here and I'm saying, well, what if I hire somebody and it doesn't work out? Hearing myself say those words makes me realize, well, that's silly because I would know by month two at the latest if it's working out or not. So I'm not spending a hundred grand on this person, spending mm. like a little bit more, a lot less. And, and I've wasted money on worse things, you know? Can we explore this topic together? Like what I'd like to do where my brain is taking me is yeah. like, Hey, let's like put this as a problem on the table that we can all talk through. So one of the things that I discovered in building businesses is that I like being around people that share a vision, share energy, et cetera. And while I think there are people who could build companies perfectly, like you talked about, they're perfect at hiring. Most of us are not that gifted. And so I've actually started to result way more on partnerships in almost all of our businesses, you know, whether it be 1099 relationships or just straight partnerships. And that for me has been like life giving because then you're hiring people that are vested. Is there a way that you could essentially maybe on a project by project basis form maybe instead of an employee model, partnership model that might not hit your bottom line as much and might move the needle forward just as a thought. You're, you're saying like maybe grab a, uh, a project manager who's based on, whose pay is based Performance. on profit rather mm -hmm. than salary or benefits. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, there was a guy kind of referred to me because I said I was looking for somebody to help with management. And so someone was referred around to me. And then once I kind of got into discussions with him, he said that he wanted to be paid. Yeah. As, as a profit share. But I mean, what would you expect to be a profit share for a project manager? Maybe like if there's no base pay, maybe 15%, I don't know, hmm. most, you know, um, because a lot of builders make maybe 20% at best. So you're probably paying them 10% at the most. Well, he wanted 50% of the profit. So I was like, well, that's not going to work. And that's, I mean, he, he probably would have been good, but that's an expensive partner. So yeah, I, I have seen that a lot of folks are, are good at that. You know, they, they kind of find the revenue model and then they go grab a partner to be the operations guy, the COO, whatever you want to call it. He takes it from there. Um, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. I've, I think there's a lot of, a lot of potential there. Um, but I think that just the traditional model of hiring a project manager mm -hmm. can be pretty effective too. But either way, you got to vet somebody that can do a good job. I guess at least with your idea there, you're not paying them until the job's done, but you still, you're still just spinning your wheels until you find somebody who can do the job decently. Um, that, that and is you're tricky still, though. you're still possibly facing a pretty interesting breakup, you know, because if the guy comes in, sometimes mm. it doesn't matter what, percentage they're on you can negotiate a low percentage if they're not doing the job they're not doing the job and that can get messy too so like there are definitely downsides to partnership there's no doubt about it um and and to be fair on the topic of hiring i think from what i've read and learned we're we're in probably a, a historic need for labor in in the market there's there's just not a lot of 
talent. And, and it seems to have been caused partially by COVID. I don't know if just a lot of, I've heard different theories, like a lot of people retired. And so that kind of moved everybody up. And then the people at the bottom of the ladder, there's nobody to fill their spot kind of thing. I've heard different theories, but what I have heard from a lot of small business owners is they're all struggling to hire right now. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Um, so let's kind of get back into what you guys are working on. So you guys do a lot of build to rent. Um, you do Airbnb and, and development. Can we talk how that looks um, from a top down perspective? Um, so kind of what a, a picture of what the company looks like right now, I guess. Yeah, just a high level. You don't have to get into the super nitty gritty. Um, we had, we started doing uh, a four unit build to rent about two years ago. I hired a builder on that and the costs went so high that we just had to pull the plug on the rent model. So we decided we we're just going to sell them and try to break even. This is one of my partnerships and the builder actually finished these just recently last month, I think. And it's been a nightmare. So we're just now trying to cut them loose and make profit. Um, so I haven't done much build to rent lately, but uh, the, 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 the development model has been pretty, pretty helpful for me to find a good niche in the marketplace. Cause it kind of hit me one day. I was, I was sort of doing my usual introverted analytical thing on the business, like looking at some stuff, figuring it out. And I realized, you know, I make 20, 25 K on this flip, but if I'd paid a GC that would have absorbed probably all my profit. And that basically means what I'm getting, I'm getting paid as a GC, you know, when I'm, I go put together the funding and I find the deal and I do all this work and then I just get paid as a GC really. So I decided to just embrace that and, and start the GC company. So I went and got my license so that I can pull permits to build houses too. But I've, and this is probably fairly recently in the past 12 months or so I decided, all right, investor Allen is a, is a project manager and let's build up this, this company. Um, we bought our first Airbnb house. Uh, just, uh, when was that? It was about a year ago and it's been up and running for about four months. We had a heck of a renovation to do on it. And, oh, you know what? I lied. We are doing one built to rent. I forgot about this one. So behind that short-term rental house, we, uh, it's zoned to allow two units. Um, so we're building a little, uh, detached accessory dwelling unit. So a DADU is the acronym that some people call it. And so that bad boy is almost done and we'll furnish that and then rent that out. And that was kind of like a unique thing because this house is like so close to downtown Nashville. It's in a great area. And I thought that is real estate I want to own. So I made a really aggressive offer on it. And it, uh, I think it makes, I mean, we're just getting off the ground, but I think the revenue from the, just the front house so far is around 8,000 a month. Um, hopefully as our listing gets stronger and more established with the Airbnb SEO, we should be hitting like, 10 to 12,000 in the summer. What's your nut monthly nut on that? Um, uh, that is averaging, oh boy, I think around 500 a night. It has varied wildly. When we first got it listed, the, the algorithm boosted us so high. This is also before all the weird slowdown stuff this summer, but um, we got seven, 800 a night on a few weekends. And now I think we're getting more like four or 500 maybe. So it, it just kind of, and this is supposed to be a pretty strong time of year. Well, October is usually a, a big month for Airbnb. So what do, what are the expenses on that, seems like. that type of property look like as far as PITI? Well, the so the mortgage I think is about 3000, taxes are like 3000 cuz we paid once it's all said and done, we'll have about 600,000 in the property. So that kind of gives you a gauge of, you know, ratios and then um 
taxes. What's the other one? Interest. Insurance. Yeah. Oh, insurance. Ah. So you're you're talking about four 12, to six thousand of a year gross margin. Then you got some property management. Probably not a whole lot of repairs because it's completely brand new. <laughs> uh, that's the thing. Uh, I don't know what happened here. We this house is so old. It's um. 1920, okay. yeah. I think, is built, and this neighborhood burnt down in like the early 1900s, and it's built back with Sears houses yeah. back when those were a thing. So this thing is old, 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 and I, I fixed a lot of it, but a lot of it I left, and we are constantly repairing stuff. And some of it is just shoddy workmanship from the, the guys I found to do the jobs at the time. So it's all a learning curve, you know. But I think since March, I was looking at the, the financials the other day. I think we've spent. Uh, six or seven thousand on what I would call repairs, and the the cleaning company for now is mm. my wife, so she doesn't mind it and she's all about it. So I say more power to you. Um, but that would be an additional expense if we uh, didn't have her doing that. So the expenses it's pretty it's pretty intense on on these types of properties. But I mean, when you make when you net two thousand in a weekend after all the Airbnb fees and stuff, it's just they print money. It's ridiculous. I mean, even if it's not an all an all star Airbnb property, it still is so much more income than a short term or a long term. Totally. Man, that's super cool. I'm I'm so glad you're giving us a look into this this element. So to dive in a little bit deeper, so you've got the the build to rents, you've got the Airbnbs, the one build to rent, and you got this development. One of the things that you referenced was surrounding you becoming a GC. It sounds from the way that you're stating it that it was like a little bit of a reluctant, like I'm doing it maybe because I have to. Can you tell me like what things like what things would you do all day if if it all paid the same? Oh, um, syndication type activities, um, deal flow, putting together partners, um, you know, getting the the moving parts all together and finding the, the you know the brokers, the attorneys, the getting everybody together to make deals happen. I think putting deals together is one of the most fun things in the world. That's always just been, you know, you get off that phone call and you're like, all right, he's in, let's go. It's just, it's fun. Um, I do like, now I do like construction because it's so process and uh, kind of order of operations driven. And that is how my mind works. And I like that. But we all know that contractors are pain. So sometimes things go a little bit sideways and it, uh, that's the part, the days where I'm just like, man, I could do without this. But the days where it's like, I got my footers guy, footer guy coming on Tuesday, and then you know my block supplies house is ready to drop, you know, anytime after that. And then my block installer, he's uh, he's like checking in with me to see when we're ready to go. When things are kind of like teed up in front, that's fun. I'm having a good time doing that. All right, cool, man. Um, so that actually brings me to something. I mean, obviously you're an introvert. And you're working with a lot of contractors now. Controvert our contractors tend to have um, a, a brash personality. Most of them, um, they tend to be loud and a little bit aggressive. So, I mean, how does that kind of play out? Yeah, um, the world of contractors is is wild. Um, so for <laughs> me, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna like yell at you or shout at you or cuss you out, but I also am pretty stubborn. So. I guess there is some, some personality traits there that are useful with construction. Cause I don't mind telling the dude, like, I'm not going to pay you because you didn't finish the job. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. It, it's I have no like I went out to one guy told me he had finished his punch list, so I went out there and then I was like, "You did half the punch list." Um, I'm not happy with this. <sighs> and then he texted me like, "Okay, now it's done." I'm like, "Well, I can't get to it today, and it might not be tomorrow because I've already been out there a couple times." You know, so I don't mind being a little bit abrasive right back at him. Um, I remember hiring a buddy of mine to get a build out of the ground. It's that one behind the short-term rental house. And he did have his GC license. He was a new GC, but I didn't yet. And I remember my plumber came out and they got in this like shout match and they're like cussing each other out. And I was just like, wow, this, I feel like we went back a few generations in like human development right there. It was just a weird thing to witness. (laughs) The contractor world is wild. I, I do think like they're they're a different breed, but there's there's a yeah. lot of that can be gained from kind of working with these guys and, and getting a product through. For sure, I was just intrigued at your response because I just tend to lean into it, right? So I mean, if they do it, I do it right back to them. Uh-huh. All right. So I mean, that's that's just been my strategy. <laughs> I'm like, all right, you're gonna give me a nickname, I can give you one too, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah, my pro, like in that um, moment, I thought, you know, if, if they both just kind of came alongside because. The plumber wanted to like run the plumbing under the formwork or this or that. And it's like, well, if you just came alongside him and said, well, okay, what if we did that? Wouldn't this be a problem? Oh, it wouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, it would be a problem. You know, and just kind of talk it through. It seems like that would work. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I remember thinking at the time, like, well, maybe sometimes you just got to cuss a fool out <laughs> to make him. Because that little plumber dude, dude, he fell in line so quick. When my buddy was cussing him out, he was just like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And he started, he kind of like, literally his body language, he like ducked and like scurried over to a different side of the job site. It was like, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah, dude, like, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. We're like, uh, the carpenter will come in, he'll, he'll, he'll frame out the bathroom, right? Then the electrician will come in and he'll like hit all the beams out, like the stabilizing beams in the middle, like this is in the way. Oh and my it, gosh. It's just like, and they'll just be like, F the other guy. And I'm like, dude, yeah. I paid that guy. Away. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I think the, you got to put it back now. Or <laughs> The worst that ever happened to me was recently this dude is running his, and he barely speak, spoke a lick of English, but um, he punched his HVAC duct to a room through the girder. So I if people listening don't know what a girder is, that's a very structural, that's that's bearing the center of the weight of your house all the way across the house. So if that fails, it's the beginning of the end of your house. So he just like drilled, I don't, like the way he drilled it out even looked wild. It was like, what tools did you use to do this? And he just sent that thing right through there. And I don't even know if air is going to flow through because it it's so compressed. And so I talked to a structural engineer and we kind of re-supported it, but it was like, don't do that, you know? What are you thinking? That's so wild. I, I just love this, this business for that reason. It's like there's no shortage of craziness, especially like when you're in the development or flipping game. I know. So one of the things I want to transition to now is to talk about moving towards a life of purpose and things that you enjoy, which is a huge part of what we do is helping people recognize what is it that I love? How can I move in that direction? So if you had a billion dollars and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, how would you structure your life? How would you define your freedom? I, I don't talk about this a lot, but I have a heart for inner city kids who don't have dads, which sounds like this really bizarre, random thing. But it just gets me, man. When I see, you know, teenagers that don't have a dad to pour into them, um, particularly young men, it's just upsetting to me. Because even as a supposed grown man, I, I just like the connection I have with my dad is something really special and kind of stabilizes me. And uh, it's... It just, it upsets me. So one of the things that I'm working towards is I want to be able to live off of 80% or no, 
live off of 20% of my income and take the other 80% and put it towards gospel centered missions. So I'd like to, you know, support somebody who has kind of that gift to connect with the inner city and those guys who are just not really sure which way to go. Like if their older brother deals drugs, they're going to deal drugs too kind of thing. So if we can um, find a way to get involved with that, I think that would be a very fulfilling purpose. And that's probably ultimately where a lot of my time would go, maybe finding that right connection with somebody who has a nonprofit kind of already running. And there's a couple of cool ones in Nashville that I've started to connect with. Um, so there's some, be some time going into that. I also just like um, when people come to me and ask for advice about real estate investing and stuff, I, I just get psyched and I can talk about it forever. So I think that if, if I had a billion dollars and I didn't really need to worry about income, I think there would be a good chance I'd be, I don't know, writing books, uh, you know, finding ways to just maybe coaching, finding ways to connect with people and help them through those steps. Because it's crazy how, you know, if you just knew A, when you were going through B, everything would change. You wouldn't have spent that extra $5,000 or you could have bought a house six months sooner because you were too scared to because you thought you didn't have the money yet, but you did because your uncle had, you know, anything you can figure out at the time, if someone is just there to kind of guide you, you can move a lot quicker and... I, I just really enjoy when people catch the bug like I've caught and they want to go buy some rentals. So um, I would enjoy that. I also think I'll probably just be an entrepreneur the day, day I die. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who work, work till they're 78. And for some reason, every farmer, which I guess is also an entrepreneur as well. But those guys work till they die. And I don't know how they do it. Uh, they're like 82 and they're still like bailing. Hay. Doing the hard work. It's wild. Yeah. But, yeah. So I want to dive in this a little bit because so, we share yeah, values there tremendously. Like I have a heart for missions growing up in the church, those types of things. So, and I also resonate with, with the mission that you have. So one of the thought processes that I've had to go through that I want to get your take on is, so you talk about the 80, 20 that you're doing, how are you currently defining when you start giving and how you start giving? Like, I'm assuming you're probably not 80, 20 mm. yet. So do you see yourself mm. like going, I'm going to increase that percentage every year, or I'm going to start doing that when I hit X amount of passive income. How are you defining the journey to do that mission from a financial perspective? I, I've been doing it incrementally. So this is a super kind of introverted analytical person thing to say, but I increase it 1% a year. So, you know, you could do it that way. There's probably better ways. Um, but that, that's sort of been my method. Also, there's this weird thing you have to sort through before you can really decide how much you're giving. And it's that salary that you're paying yourself from your business because a lot of people... I read, uh, I think it's a book called Simple Numbers by Greg Crabtree. And it's like the best book on accounting and finance. Well, we'll say accounting and finance for entrepreneurs. And his first chapter, he comes out of the gate saying, if you're not paying yourself a salary, you need to at least consider in your financials, you know, your P&L shows that you're paying a salary to yourself because the, any kind of financials you have from that point don't matter unless you are starting with, you know, what... If I'm a project manager for my company and that's half my job and a project manager salary is 100000 if it's half my job, that's like a 50000 salary is sort of how I'm allocating it. So before you can decide how much money you're you're giving and, and all that, it's kind of like establish what is your salary because I recycle a lot of my money right back into the – I never even see it. It just goes into the next house. So you have to have good habits for um, – making sure that it's not just on the back burner. Like, you know, you can draw money when you need it, but it's really better if you kind of pay yourself a regular salary and then build off of that. And yeah, just kind of inch up towards it. I mean, this may be kind of 
um, what would you call it? Like rose colored glasses perspective here. But I was thinking at a certain point, I'm just not going to need any more money for daily expenses. And that's probably when I'll start ratcheting up that process quicker. Like I'm 33 now, I think. So I'd imagine by like 40, 45, we're probably going to be coming pretty close to that 80, 20 goal. I mean, we live on hardly anything now. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You just said you're 33, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I say the same thing all the time because I don't even know my age half the time. Yeah. I'm like, wait, wait, I'm 34. Yeah, oh, I'm 34. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> it's funny because once you hit a certain age, you just don't really care as much anymore. It's like you just, just not a number. Early 30s. Um, I would love to get into this one. You sent this over like right before a call. So, I mean, I want to get into your, the Tesla goal. Oh, yeah. How, how a goal force you to think differently and find a way to scale? So two years ago, I kind of just was sitting down thinking about, you know, next steps in the business. And I thought, all right, if I can hit this net profit goal, I'll go buy a Tesla. And, you know, why not? Because that goal is making so much more money than I'm making now. Then it'll just kind of the Tesla's like free at that point. And lo and behold, I was not expecting this to happen, which is why I want to tell people about it so they can use the same technique. But I started to think differently. So I'm like, wait, if that's my goal, I ain't going to do that buying one house every few months. I got to, let's see, how many houses would that be? And so I started kind of doing the math and backing into it. The next thing you know, I've got like a whole different business strategy to work my way towards there. So now I'm thinking, well, I got to be buying at least a house a month. So I'm like looking at so many deals. I'm getting aggressive on this. And the other thing it helps with, going back to that fear topic, it also will kind of like, push back the fear a little because it's like, well, I can't be afraid of, oh, let me phrase it, frame it this way. So if you look at a house and you've got several other houses going and you're like, well, it's a decent deal, but I kind of got a lot going on. Like, why don't I just, why don't I just finish these, sell these and then see where we're at. But if your goal is way up here, it's, you don't have that option of like, why don't I just maybe wait, you, you got to buy that house. So that's what happened to me is I started offering on houses left and right. And I was like talking to people and raising more money. And I think this was like, two years ago. And that's when I would say I was kind of moving up into that small business owner instead of just a guy trying to make money in real estate kind of thing. Um, yeah. So that really, it just shifted. It made me look at it different. Like now it's how do I get there and reverse engineer it? And um, I actually, I met the goal a few months ago and ordered the Tesla and I got it a week ago. So it's a very fresh topic for me. I've been driving this thing for a week and I just love it. Got the full self-driving and everything. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm like, you know, low key planning on kind of working while I'm driving. That's, that's sort of the whole thing. Like heading back from the job site and firing <laughs> off some emails. We'll see. All right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I never said that. I don't know. We'll, oh, we'll find out. That's awesome. Well, first off, congrats on hitting that goal. Thanks. So, I mean, when, when you explain that to me, what I heard is that you found like a really good why, mm -hmm. and then you just got after it. Is that kind of how you see it now? Like you found a really good reason to go do it. Your why became very, very achievable. So you just went for it. Yeah. I never thought of it like that, but that's not, you mentioned that. That's true. It's just having that. Cause honestly, when I got into real estate, it sounds like the most ridiculous thing, but I bought a house cause I thought, well, why not put money into something that then makes money for me and being so dang frugal, that was enough of a why for me. Really strange. But, yeah. um, I guess yeah. that kind of, that new, the Tesla why took me to the next model. Uh, wow. That was confusing. Took me to the next level because I started thinking about it differently. And, and yeah, I guess it just was a more compelling, like let's, we got work to do, let's go. Yeah, love that. And I'm excited to see how that translates. I wanna stay in touch with you to the inner city missions. 
I know like I went to an event with Brandon Turner a few months ago and he was talking about they're getting ready to get to a place where they buy these syndications that end up making 10 to 30 million because they're obviously raising tons of money. They're going to start donating housing, like like full syndication projects to people that need it, which I'm just like so fired up to see that take place. So I, I, I just, it's so cool. because like, awesome. One of the things I struggle with sometimes and I shouldn't, you know, being, having been in ministry like my whole life was like, sometimes you give and like the return on that give is so small. So it's like, there's these two worlds. There's our world where we want to see our money work for us and grow. And it's hard to strip that away. Like if I'm going to put money into something in ministry, I want to see the return on that money, right? Like mm. from a ministry perspective and uh, you know, but some of the stuff that like you're mentioning, like I think could be really good, you know, especially if we're buying housing for people that can then use it. But uh, I'm really excited to hear about your journey. So please make sure you keep us up to date as you start moving to the 80-20 on, on what takes place. Yeah, right now the biggest hurdle that I'm, I'm struggling to find is the, the right kind of nonprofit. Like, because um, there, there's nonprofits out there that'll, you know, help the inner city, but they're not necessarily gospel centered or there's ones that are gospel centered, but they don't really have any kind of results. And I think even if you're giving to a nonprofit, you, to just pay it forward, it's still important to make sure that they're doing something useful with the money. I think you're you're somewhat accountable to that. Once you give it to them, it's not your business anymore, I would say, but before you, you need to research that nonprofit. So I'm really trying to find like that, um, you know, that nonprofit president or CEO or whoever who's going to kind of be someone that I can really line up with and say, hey, you know, you've got you you've got cousins and uncles and whatever in the inner city and you're you're connected in that community maybe you need money maybe you need you know what what's going to help you let me kind of be on the on the sidelines helping out with that so um I, I think it is it is pretty exciting um but it's just kind of a tricky vague goal like how do you go out and solve that problem you know and to get even more specific about it it's like how do you help dads to want to stay around because that's the strongest factor you know you can mentor a kid but if he's uh if he's uh if his dad isn't in the picture then it's just his development is different so um it's, it's a tricky problem to solve absolutely it is and, and you know i'm actually super pumped about the question that matt started asking if you had all this money what would you do because when we ask entrepreneurs almost every one of them has like a purpose lined up or they have something that they want to do so I'm going to start asking this question to regular people and just see if I get the same response. Because I, I feel like a lot of them are just going to say, I'm going to go to the beach and, and, and drink margaritas or something. And that's not the way I would live my life. I would be looking for fulfillment because, I mean, money is not everything. And, and once you have it, you realize that. But, I mean, mm -hmm. I just think it's an interesting concept that I'm it going to is. be toying around with just for fun. Um, <laughs> so cool, man. Um, and anybody listening, if you want to reach out to Alan Smith, um, we're going to have Instagram in the show notes. Alan, I want to thank you so much. Um, there's actually a lot of more stuff that we could probably get into. So I think we might invite you around for another round if you're into it. Um, but thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And um, to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, commit to taking one action and do so in the next seven days and tell somebody you know so that they can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too. We'll be living a life of freedom. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one.
Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 